0: take credits like like you just get to say well i did this and therefore i get credit for it and if things go badly you can say oh it's his fault Th- this may sound like a weird time to mention this but i like think tank in fact i think it's one of the better episodes uh, in this particular bracket of episodes which is funny coming right after the fight you know but no, I, I, you know, I've said it before. I think season, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, season five is a solid season, and I like a lot of it. And this is another good episode. And Rick Berman said, "No, I, I helped with that. I helped with that. I made that. And stamped his name on it." Now, multiple accounts, both the director and Joe Jermanowski say, "No, he didn't. He didn't do Jack." Uh, Taylor is the guy who actually did the screenplay, and Braga is the one who apparently had the idea. And I firmly believe that. This feels like a Taylor script, and it feels like a Braga ideal. Uh, One of the things I've said many times in defense of Bernard Braga is the fact that he's a really good person to just come up with ideas, concepts. And when he's paired with someone else who's a good writer, they, they can take that and mold that into something awesome. Now, we've seen this several times. In fact, we saw this back on TNG, back when he really got noticed as a writer. So I firmly believe that, because the idea behind this episode is fascinating to me. We have a think tank, a group of people, not a large group of people, who go around in a stupidly advanced vessel, solving problems. They have basically abandoned any concept of morality and ethics. They only care about two things. The problem itself and the satisfaction of solving it and whatever it is they actually want or need. And it's funny because that idea itself is kind of unique in its in its own way. It's it's an interesting take on the bounty hunter concept, which I find fascinating actually because um <clears throat> the uh Oh shoot, did I write their name down? The Zerai? Zerahi? God, I'm so bad with names. Bounty hunters, bounty hunters. Uh why the heck's the I, I don't think I wrote down their name. Whatever, the the people who are the bounty hunter race. It's an interesting inverse of each other. The bounty hunter people work for money. They wander around for some kind of currency and they go capture things or kill things at the end, right? The think tank wander around and they demand things that interest them or things that they need. Or things that they want. For example, that ore they take at the beginning of the episode, maybe they actually had a use for that. Maybe it's something that they could use in combination with something else that, of course, the planet doesn't have. Or that you wouldn't otherwise think of. And allows them to go ahead and put it together into something nice. Like their armor or some power for their shields. You know, something. There's there's several different ways that works. And I like the idea of them just asking for random knickknacks along the way. I'll talk more about that in a bit. <clears throat> One other thing, though... Uh, it, just to to add to that thought, it's the idea of having the third person perspective. The think tank has access to you know dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of different worlds and species and concepts and ideas and technologies, and so when they interact with something like this, they can say, "Well, that might go together with this to make something brand new." To that person, it might not even be valuable. They might not even care, and yet, if they to the think tank, it would be extremely valuable because of what they could use it for. We've seen this in real-life history where people will encounter a mineral or an item or a, or a concept or whatever and say that is extremely useful to us, whereas the people local to it or the people around it don't really have a sense of that value because they don't have that third perspective. They don't have the the knowledge of all of the variables, if I could put it into such words. So I like the concept of the think tank a lot. Um, it's. Uh, I also want to add one thing here. Uh, they say that they cured the Genophage. I, I have a first comment here. I want to comment on that later as well, but I wanted to mention it just to make sure I don't forget about it. Because my first thought was, oh, whatever, they cured the Genophage. Because if they cured the Genophage, they have Transwarp Drive. Now, that's possible. They do primarily wander around in subspace, so it is entirely feasible that they do that. But I mention that because the Videans are way over that way. You know they're a long ways away so the idea that they just encountered the vidians and cured the genophage in in the intervening years is possible but at the same time it might have just been a tactic again i'll talk about that later um also as an aside jason alexander does an excellent job as the villain Kuros. uh for those of you not familiar with him jason alexander has done several things but he's most known for doing Seinfeld especially when this episode came out and yet you know the I was expecting okay so Voyager at several points in time this will happen in the future too will bring in effectively a star from another show that's popular at the time to try and it's it's kind of a trading viewers sort of a thing you know hey look this guy's over here something like that Uh, and this guy's over there kind of a thing um I don't really feel like this one was done cheaply, though, because he actually firmly puts himself into the role of Kiros. At no point does he, you know, pull a Seinfeld shtick or whatever, at least none that I had caught or was aware of. Instead, he is just the villain. He is the villain of this episode. He does a great job of it as the voice of the Think Tank. And again, I'll get to that in a bit. Um, Final thoughts about the Think Tank themselves. They're the inverse of the Borg. I'm serious. They function... By having a joint telepathic connection with each other that enables them to other, uh, do exactly what I said earlier with minds rather than resources. Again, this may not be meaning to you, but I'm looking at this from another perspective, so I see you can do this. It's one of the reasons why puzzle solving uh, in like real-life situations like engineering and programming and mathematics usually and indeed should involve multiple people. And why you want to avoid a groupthink scenario when it comes to that kind of a problem. Because that way, this person can look at it from a different perspective and say, aha, well, you didn't think of this. And the person can say, "Ah, you're right, but what about this? You know, the conjoining of minds. Very similar to the collective, the difference is each of them remain distinctly individual. They're simply benefiting from that joint collective. And again, that's why I call it the inverse rather than the, the opposite of the Borg uh, collective. It's, it's a nice little thing. Anyway, so let's talk about the episode. The beginning is so obvious and yet wonderfully portrayed. It is the, the, So Kuros does some very, very obvious bargaining tactics in his portrayal with nameless blue alien. Um, so the blue alien shows up on their ship, wanders around. Keep in mind, there's like six... One, two, three, four... Five. Actually, I think there's five people, on the, five or six people on this ship. So he shows up on the ship, and no one's there to greet him. No one says hello, nothing happens. He's just, hello, hello. There's no reason for that unless you're doing it deliberately. That is the only reason to do that, especially since, as we learn later, it's probable that they beamed him up. So they leave him alone and scared in an alien place where he doesn't fully understand what he's doing, in order to put him off kilter, in order to put him off center, right? First first tactic. Again, this is straight out of a rule book. Second thing, make him wait for a bit. You know, acknowledge him, and then make him wait for several more seconds as they allow that tension and anxiety to build. Then, next thing you do, positivity. Be diplomatic, be gracious, be respectful. One of my favorite t- lines, and it's great because it's, again, it's it's very, very good cop, it's kind of a situation. He's like, oh, you, you you know, the guy is praising the think tank. You did in, you know, weeks or minutes or hours or however long it was uh, what, we, what we have failed to do for decades. And Kuros' response, graciously, is to admit that it was a very complicated problem, that it took them a long time. In other words, rather than gloating, rather than saying, yes, we are superior to you, he allows that it was such a difficult problem that it is logical that anyone would have a problem with it. Again, that sort of positivity, good cop, gracious diplomacy if i will then the next thing that happens is the guy tries to lie to him and he calls him out on it because he knows he lied and then he cuts immediately and severely to the most dire threat he can leave we will turn off the thing and lots of your people will die horribly in the quake and he says it so calmly that's important you don't wrist slap if you're doing this kind of a tactic you are nice and kind and polite Right up until they decide to not go along with you. And then you hit them as hard and as viciously and brutally as you can. So again, in this case, oh, you're not going to give us what we want. Okay, well, we'll just let you all die in horrible quakes. You know, again, straight to the extreme. That forces them, because they're already on balance, because they're going straight from the whiplash of really kind to really terrible. It's very carrot and the stick. And so they're like, okay, okay, no, we capitulate, which is the logical answer in that case. And then he's like, ah... and the moment he capitulates, and he says, Oh, this is all a misunderstanding. He goes right back to graciousness. It's already forgotten. It's not an issue. No worries. Thank you for the ore. We'll take it immediately. You know, just right back to that diplomacy. Just like he shifted a switch from intimidate to diplomacy, to use the D&D term. Forgive me for talking on, but that really, I think, was a really well-done scene. Really well-written and really well-acted and really well-directed. I just wanted to give it the praise it deserves. Um so yeah the race of bounty hunters I already mentioned that I shouldn't say race of bounty hunters but you know the group of bounty hunters um it's an interesting concept again of course the think tank effectively does the same damn thing uh, as as the uh excuse me as the race of bounty hunters but uh I I find the trap that was laid for them to be interesting There's a lot to be extrapolated on this. So the think tank hires bounty hunters who are intelligent, skilled, and highly advanced to go after Voyager. They pay them quite a sum. They make sure that they don't know it's the think tank because the think tank is very much wanted in the sector because they are rather notorious. And gee, I wonder why. Um, So they are like, you know, oh, go get them, blah, blah, blah. Give Voyager this terrible solution. Present the most and then go to them and present them the answer in exchange for what they want. In other words, they always wanted Seven. This was always done to get a hold of Seven, to recruit Seven. I think this says everything about the think tank that needs to be said. I've debated on this some time. I don't know if they do this 100% of the time. In fact, I would imagine they don't for reasons I'll discuss in a minute. But this feels like a normal tactic for the think tank. We will engineer your problem so that we can engineer your solution and once we have figured out your solution you will give us what we want or we'll take away the solution in other words while the bounty hunters as i compared earlier are running around just taking for money and whatnot the think tank is extorting you and that's really the difference between the two um now again i don't think they do that all the time i don't want to explain why so first of all, he's very diplomatic with Janeway. Again, same general tactic. Very diplomatic, very honest, you know, very, you know, hey, da, 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 da. lots of uh, lying by telling the truth going on display. Which brings me to my next point, he mentioned several people that they've helped in the past, you know, someone finding a pet, uh, helping some people, you know, cure a plague or figure, f- fix a gas giant or whatever, you know, all this stuff. And he mentions specifically the things they asked in return, which is very important. We asked for this and this and that, you know, one of them was a recipe for soup. I think those are legitimate stories. Two reasons why. Number one, it does help their, for lack of a better term, public image to actually have people who are genuinely grateful to them for their aid. Number two, so that they can do exactly what he's doing here. It's the soft sell. We're not asking much. I mean, we asked this guy for a recipe for soup. I mean, my goodness. You are putting the opponent because that's what a negotiation is, a versus situation, you are putting the opponent into a more receptive mind, state of mind by mentioning to them how little you have asked from people in the past. And if you do that genuinely, you don't have to lie about it, then it works better. A, because you're telling the truth. B, because if they t- check to verify you know, under the right circumstances, they can verify it. So I think they do actually do those charity cases, for lack of a better term, literally just to help them with the other jobs, which are much less than charitable. Because it's all just numbers to these people. That's probably one of the underlying themes here. All they care about is the variables, the calculations, and whatnot. That's it. That's all they're after. Um, also, as an aside, uh, one thing I find interesting is each of the members of the think tank, they mention their specialties. They don't really mention Kuros' specialty. But they show Kuros' specialty in that intro sequence, in, in the debate, in the thing I just mentioned, in the negotiation tactics. He is the social... Specialist. He's the guy who's good at dealing with other people. He's the face. He's the bard of the party. He's got a max charisma. I'm I'm running a game tonight, so it's kind of on my mind. He's got a huge charisma score and tons of skill points. He is the person who interacts with the other people, and that is a that is a science. That is something that you can learn and do. That is something you can be skilled at, and is something he's probably damned good at, given that what we've seen about it. Now you can only showcase that so much, but they do a good job of it. Um. I also mentioned the uh, charity case thing here because he pulls this tactic on her as well. Now, the problem is what he's asking of Janeway is a pretty big deal. I don't know how much research they did on Voyager before they went after them, but I have a feeling this tactic would have worked a lot better on most other crews, most other ships. You know, again, softening them up. Talking about things, being gracious, you know, all the diplomacy, just making them more and more and more receptive. And then when you finally ask, you know, give your price, it's some really simple things. You know, a, a recipe from Neelix, an artifact from Chakotay, and one of your crew members. And that's when the hammer comes down right there at the end, one of your crew members. Now, it doesn't work in this case because A, this is Janeway, B, this is Voyager, and C, this is Seven. All three of those factors mean that the answer to that is always going to be no, no matter how receptive she's been built up to. Because a hammer blow, at, at that with, it's like a hammer that has a spike that's got acid and fire on it. You know, just, oh, okay, whoa, wait, hang on, you know, we, we need to talk about this. You can't soften someone up for that. Just a hammer blow? Maybe. But all three of those things combined? No, no, it's not going to work. Which brings me to my next point rather smoothly. I love how Janeway approaches Seven with the choice. She says, it's not about Voyager. We'll figure a way out of this one way or another. It's not about me ordering you. It's not about the crew. It's about you. You have, and I'm going to quote her here, you have earned the right to make this choice for yourself. And I like that. It is actually a very logical direction to go after Dark Frontier and will lead naturally into our next good episode at the beginning of Season 6, which I've referenced like 50 times by now. So this is a nice bridge point to get to that. I will also admit from a writing perspective, it's interesting to think that this could have been an out for Voyager. If they wanted to, for whatever reason, to get rid of Seven, or to temporarily get rid of Seven, which is what I would think about doing, and or to get rid of, you know, if Jerry Ryan needed to go do another show, if there's health issues, or maybe she just hated the show. You know, there's all sorts of things that can happen. If they needed to get Seven off the show, this is a great out to do that. She joins the think tank. Off she goes. It even allows the option of her coming back in the future, much more than Kes did. Ugh, we're not at that episode yet, are we? Anyways, um, so I like that. I like, I like the way they constructed that. But of course, they would never kill off one of the most popular characters in a TV show while it's going live. That's silly. What is this, Game of Thrones? <sighs> that sounds flippant, but I mention that to once again highlight the difference in mentality in television between the decades. Back in the 90s and early 2000s. No, you really wouldn't do that. You don't get rid of your most popular character. That's insane. That's, that's like stabbing yourself in the foot. In the modern era, and Game of Thrones is not alone in this, by the way. There are several modern TV shows who follow this new philosophy. Popular character means it will hurt more if you get rid of them, especially violently. If you do something significant and traumatic with them, the audience will feel it more, and therefore, theoretically, be more invested in the show. Both mindsets actually work in their own element. I'm not saying either is right or wrong. I'm just comparing and contrasting television between then and now. Because it is quite a bit of a difference. Uh, So I also like how Kuros tries to sell Seven on the job. He approaches her as if she's a Borg. You notice that? He approaches her, uh, he constantly talks about perfection and how she needs to drive towards bettering herself and furthering herself and understanding more and yada yada yada. He approaches her as if she was still a drone, not understanding that she is neither a drone nor a human, which again ties into that Dark Frontier thing I just mentioned about. Um, and it is a nice tactic that would have probably worked if she wasn't seven, as opposed to Annika or Seven of Nine. No, she is seven, so it, it, it bounces off of her. You notice that she's not even, like, that tempted. It's an interesting idea, but no. I can do those things here. I can push myself here. I care about this crew. There are intangible benefits to being on Voyager. All you are offering me is tangible benefits to not be on Voyager. And I know that sounds like a weird sentence, but trust me. There are very few things that are more important to people, especially here in real life, than intangible benefits. I'm serious. Um... Another nice little uh, touch, just a little thing. This is Michael, uh, or not Michael Taylor, uh, shoot. can't remember the name. The director of this episode, he does a nice little thing. Kuros does a few things. He's always very calm and very measured when he's moving around on the ship, when he's the isometric projection. When the ship's being attacked, everyone, including Janeway, right in the front, like, oh, you know, they do the usual ship shake thing that all Star Trek uh, cast members have to learn how to do. He doesn't. He just stands there completely immobile. That was a really nice touch. It's not actually fully logical when you think about it because he he is again effectively there. He can interact with the environment. He can drink the coffee and taste it even. But it's a nice way visually to show that he's not really there, that he doesn't he doesn't fit, that he stands out. It's a nice touch even if it doesn't quite logical. Um there is a downside to this episode. Uh, and it, again, is indicative of the, one of the big problems of Star, uh, Star Trek in general, and especially at this era. And that is, the think tank is too condensed. One episode is too little for this plot line to really work, in my opinion. This should have been an undercurrent plot thread through several episodes that then paid off in the actual think tank episode. This could have been something they were working at this whole time. That would have been great. That would have helped set up the suspense, have the background plot, have the investment of it, and, of course, it gets rid of one of my problems with this episode. Namely, the think tank are too damn impatient. They have effectively forever to convince Seven to join them. Why are they in such a rush? Why do they push so hard for it to happen now? Now, 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 now. Now, we know the answer. It's because the episode's going to end and then the think tank are going to go away forever. So, you know, we, we need this to be resolved. But that's why I say this could have been better stretched across several episodes. Make it a little smoother a little more uh, dimension to them. That kind of a thing. Um, I love Seven's solution to the puzzle box. It's actually brilliant. Kirk would approve, I think. For those of you not familiar with this episode or aren't just listening to me and I haven't actually watched it, there's this puzzle thing that Paris brought on, Tom Paris brought on. And, you know, it's like a Rubik's Cube, except obviously it's not. It's this alien thing that you got to press the buttons right, yada, 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 right, to solve the puzzle. And, and people just keep having trouble with it, especially Janeway. She just keeps failing at it over and over and over. And it gets to the end, and she's playing with it while she's in the, in the room thinking and debating and trying to figure out what she's going to do about this dilemma she's in. And she's like, okay, fine, Seven, show me the answer. And then Seven just does it. And they're like, how'd you do that? I scanned it with a tricorder. She cheated. She changed the rules of the test. She figured out exactly what was required from an external source to solve the problem, and then solved it. I like that a lot, because that is, again, a very Kirk kind of thing to do, and is an excellent example of outside-the-box thinking. Now, reality moment. If you're playing that puzzle, the point is to solve it. You know, it's a game. You're doing it for fun. But... If you're looking at it from the objective of this is a thing to be solved, then pushing it aside, pulling out your tricorder, and figuring out how to solve it by scanning the damn thing is a very clear example. Again, it's, it's an example of outside-the-box thinking, and it's a, it's a brilliant little solution to the problem. I, uh, I could re- t- uh, go on to a whole tangent here about video games and cheating in video games. I don't think I'm going to. All I'm going to say is this. I have nothing wrong with cheating in video games. I never have. I don't prefer to do it myself unless I'm not enjoying the game. The gameplay, I should, I should stress that. Um, or unless I've got some other reason to it, like I'm doing a lore run or whatever. Because uh, for me, like if I'm cheating in a Civilization game, in my perspective, the only one I'm cheating out of that game is me. I'm cheating myself out of the experience. But if I'm playing through a game like, oh, I don't know... Uh I I don't have a good example off the top of my head. I'll use a friend. I've said this many and many times. I have several friends who like the Warcraft and StarCraft games, who like who love the story and hate the gameplay. They don't like playing the game. So they turn on cheats and go blitz the game so that they can then just enjoy the story. You know, it's an it's a very valid purposeful reason for doing that, for just going ahead and enjoying what is actually there. It's kind of a, the same concept. But anyways, that's it. I don't want to go too much into the tangent. Um well, one tiny little note here. It looks like I'm at the end of my uh, my notes here. I kind of wish they hadn't explained the plan. Now, if you don't know what I mean by that, they could have structured this episode differently so that they're in the thing and they're like, oh god, what are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? How do we do this? Ah, oh, it's stupid. And then it cuts. And then it cuts away. And then we have the the bounty hunters contacting the think tank being like, give us more money. And then Voyager goes over and it's like, oh my god. So there's actual tension so that you think there is, you know, that that this is going bad. And then you have the reveal of, oh, by the way, this has all been our plan all along. I'm not saying it's better or worse, but I think I would have preferred that method rather than walking into it saying we have a plan and then all of that happens so you know there's no danger because this is probably all part of the plan that's why they had that there we have a plan scene earlier anyways uh, final note i think it's interesting in in, in voyager in general in specific and star trek in general where they very commonly try to reach out to the third option i mean this is the series that tried to make diplomatic contact with the crystalline entity for god's sakes so I find it interesting that in all the attempts they've always made to you know make peace and make things work and, and try to help everyone and save everyone, they just leave the think tank to be battered by an entire fleet of angry va- vessels who are trying to actively destroy the hell out of them. That's a nice touch. Anyways, that's all I got. Next week? What's next week? Um, I don't know what's next week because I'm. that since the end of February. So uh, next week will be March. So I will see you in March, guys. Have a good one. Cool.